Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. You're listening to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its grave diggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And joining us today from New Delhi, our guest is a writer, an artist, and a member of the internationally renowned. Arax Media Collective. Thank you very much for joining us. Shuddha Brata Sengupta. Yes. Wonderful. Uh, you got my name straight in one go. Nice. <laughs> we've we've got you on to talk to us a bit about the uh, CAA and the NRC. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Could you give us a, a bit of background about what's going on over in India? Well, there's lots going on. And most importantly, yesterday we had an election result in Delhi, the city that I live in, which is also the capital of India where the very divisive um, and hatred-filled agenda of the ruling Bharatiya Janata Party, BJP, was defeated quite decisively, and um, which demonstrated the fact that at least in India's capital city, which is a huge metropolis, uh, there's not much of a purchase for um, the Citizenship Amendment Act, the CAA and the NRC, and the kind of politics that is behind these um, these pieces of law. To give you a little bit of background, the Citizenship Amendment Act was introduced um, and passed in Parliament on the 11th of December uh, last year, 2019, and comes at the climax of a whole series of developments that have to do with attempts by the ruling BJP to redefine the criterion for Indian citizenship on sectarian lines. So the origins of this question lie in the northeastern province of Assam, where there has been a several decades long controversy about whether or not there are so-called illegal emigrants from Bangladesh and what was earlier East Pakistan in Assam. This is a territory in which people have been moving and migrating for hundreds of years. So it's people moving across sort of artificially created state and province lines is is you know, it's, it's part of the natural history of the region. Chauvinistic forces in Assam wanted to deport and remove people who are essentially Bengali-speaking migrants from uh, what they consider to be East Pakistan or Bangladesh. Many of these people have had families in this region for over, you know, centuries and have had histories of migration in and out of the region. That led to a situation where tribunal was constituted to detect what was supposed to be illegal foreigners, and then an entire process of creating a national register of citizens through a highly discriminatory order of the Indian Supreme Court was instituted. This national register of citizens 
filtered out something like around 2 million people, of which roughly 60% were Hindus, Bengali-speaking Hindus, and roughly 40% were Bengali-speaking Muslims. Now, the BJP, which is a party that champions the cause of Hindus, was caught in a kind of double bind because of this. On the one hand, it wanted to create this divisive agenda of filtering out immigrants. And on the other hand, it wanted to champion the cause of Hindus, who are its, who it considers to be its constituency. This led to a situation where they tried to solve this dilemma by creating the Citizenship Amendment Act, which then produces a situation where the state can give citizenship uh, around a certain cutoff date to non-Muslim immigrants from Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Afghanistan. Everybody in India who was concerned about this immediately understood that this is a kind of sectarian delimitation of the qualifications necessary to acquire Indian citizenship. In one, in very simple terms, a devaluation of Muslims in terms of their relationship to citizenship. And the way in which you had to prove citizenship if you were sus if you were suspected of not being a citizen was to produce what were called legacy documents or papers going back to at least one or two generations where you had to prove that your parents or grandparents also lived in India. This, this demand to show papers outraged a very large section of people all over India of course, Muslims, but also many others, including Dalits, the lowest castes, Adivasis, the indigenous populations, and poor people generally, who are all document poor, and for whom this demand to produce documents as a way to establish that one is a citizen seemed like an insult. From then onwards, from around the 13th of December onwards, there have been many agitations, and these agitations have been met with brutal force. Roughly uh, around 30 people have already been killed in incidents of police violence in Uttar Pradesh, the northern state bordering Delhi, in Assam, and in Karnataka. Um, and people have been outraged everywhere. And this has led to a series of on, um, ongoing night-long 24-7 vigils and citizens' protests in many parts of the, of, the, of the country, and especially in Delhi. That's the background against which all of this is happening. I have seen media reportage of protest about the CIA, and often it seems to be concentrated on uh, university campuses. Can you speak to the role of students in this protest movement? Certainly. Um, students are very involved in the, in the resistance to the Citizenship Amendment Act, but they've also been involved across university campuses in resistance to what they perceive as assaults on higher education. This involves funding cuts. This involves restrictive ordinances that attempt to constrain academic life. It involves protests against uh, completely unreasonable fee hikes. Um, this government seems to, to particularly enjoy attacking young people. And uh, students have been at the forefront of resistance to the government. Um, particularly what happened on the 13th of December was that a student uh, march was announced from Jamia Millia Islamia University, a very major central university in Delhi, from the university campus to parliament. Incidentally, this is the university where I myself have studied. 
Um, this march was stopped and uh, was met with a lot of violence. The police entered the campus, raided hostel rooms and attacked people. There was another march again on the 15th of December, two days later, and that was met with incredible amounts of violence. Police entered the library through tear gas inside the library, attacked women, students in washrooms and really, you know, uh, produced a situation of complete terror, complete state terrorism. Since then, since the 15th of December, students in Jamia Millia Islamia and in other universities have been in a state of continuous protest. So the, the three universities, three big universities in Delhi, Jamia Millia Islamia, Jawaharlal Nehru University, or JNU as it is known, and Delhi University, there have been continuous student protests. Along with this, there was an ongoing student agitation against um, fee hikes and um, registration processes that seemed invasive in Jawaharlal Nehru University. On the 5th of January, a mob of right-wing hooligans entered that campus and led a murderous attack. They almost killed uh, the Jawaharlal Nehru University Students' Union president, a young woman called Aisha Ghosh. So there seemed to be a pattern. The regime was either letting police into campuses. And by the way, in Indian universities, the police cannot enter campuses without authorization from the university authorities. In Jamia Millia Islamia, they entered university campuses without authorization, attacked students. In Jawaharlal Nehru University, they stood by and watched while right-wing mobs entered the university and attacked students and faculty. When the police were called upon to intervene in the second instance, they did not intervene. So we have a situation where either the police itself acts as the hooligans of the regime, or they stand by and watch while ununiformed hooligans enter and ransack campuses, attack students and, and faculty. As a result of this, there's been a steady increase in student protest. There is now an All India Youth Joint Coordination Committee against the Citizenship Amendment Act, which is active in many parts of the country. And uh, young people everywhere are very resolutely with the citizens' protests and are an important part of it. As you've uh, mentioned, there has been seemingly the intervention of right-wing paramilitaries on the campuses Correct. and on the streets. To what extent do you think that these are organised interventions? And what's the relationship between the BJP, its youth wing or its student movement, and other uh, groups such as the RSS, which, as I understand it, is a, a far-right or fascist political organisation. The RSS is currently, I think, the oldest active fascist organisation in the world. Uh, the RSS was founded in the 1920s and is an extremely powerful and very secretive organisation, although, of course, it operates in the open, in public, but no one quite knows how they make their decisions. They don't have any written, you know, chart or anything. They um, were inspired by, at first, the Italian fascist movement and then by the Nazis. Their founding father, the second uh, founding father, M.S. Goldwalker, uh, you know, in his writings, publicly extolled um, the Nazi example of the what he called the solution to the Jewish question as the way in which India should handle its minorities. This is a part of the historical record. These are his writings. The BJP party is an offshoot of the RSS, of what is called the Parivar, the family, the RSS family. And there are many such organizations, including the youth and student wings, for instance, which you mentioned, 
the Akhil Bharatiya Vidyarthi Parishad or the All India Student Council, which is a, a, the student wing of the RSS BJP combination. And it's often the stormtroopers of the ABVP, the student wing or the youth wing, who, who are most active in carrying out the violent agenda of the BJP. The BJP acts as an official political party, has you know, members of parliament, it's currently running the government, has people, uh, you know, the prime minister is a member of the BJP, also a full-time former preacher, as they call it, of the RSS. And the relationship between these entities is a very fluid one. So the agenda is set by the RSS, executed legislatively and through the, through the executive by the BJP in power, and informally enforced through violence by the, uh, by the RSS's student and youth wings. And the police machinery is completely subordinated to this process. Both the police and elements of the higher judiciary and the armed forces have been infiltrated by this organization and its ideology. And they've become an effective formal informal apparatus that actually now more or less operates in, 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 synch in synchronicity. Different wings operate in different ways. So when the right-wing militias enter university campuses, they will wear masks. When the leaders spout hate speech in election rallies, they take off those masks. And then the police stands by with uniforms and sometimes act secretly without uniforms. That's how the machine operates. You are listening to 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We are currently talking to Shudabrata Sengupta about the situation in India. You mentioned before that New Delhi has just had its election where uh, the BJP uh, was very yeah. roundly trounced. Mm -hmm. This is on the back of them running, as you said, a very hateful campaign, where, which included yeah. campaign speeches where you know, they accused the uh, organisers of the Shahin Bagh protests of, uh, you know, being terrorists and traitors and yeah. in some cases called for people to shoot them, uh, calls that were answered yeah. uh, should be mm. noted. Uh, do you think that that sort of result is possible to be replicated on a national scale or has the BJP sort of uh, put their finger too far down onto the, uh, on the scales? Well, I mean, the Delhi results uh, come in the wake of other provincial assembly elections that happened a few months ago where the BJP was also defeated. Uh, we have the examples of Rajasthan, a state bordering Delhi, Madhya Pradesh and Chhattisgarh, two very important states um, in central India. Um, so it's not as if the BJP's sway is absolute in India. Uh, it's increasingly getting eroded. And I think that it is as a response to this weakening that they're also ratcheting up the hate speech, the, the references that you gave of ministers. For instance, the Minister of State for Finance exhorted an election crowd to say, shoot the traitors. And by the traitors, he means the people, as you mentioned, in Shaheen Bagh and in the other citizens' protests. Shaheen Bagh is a, is a neighborhood in the, in the south um, east of Delhi, uh, which is predominantly Muslim, and where we've now... In, in a couple of days, it'll be two months of an ongoing 24-7 protest, led and completely mobilized by the women of the neighborhood, from grandmothers to girls, um, who, are, who are in a peaceful, completely nonviolent and 
amazingly beautiful example of what citizens initiative can be and it's this that was sought to be answered with bullets and as you rightly mentioned there have actually been three instances by now of random uh, attempts at shooting with country made weapons at crowds either in shahin bag or very close to shahin bag in the jamia millia islamia university the bjp's paranoia its anxiety is um, sort of producing these responses their ideological uh, spectrum doesn't really permit them to think outside the box of hatred very effectively that's the language they know that's the language they understand so in a moment of crisis for them that's how they hit out now obviously that's not paying electoral dividends i don't personally know if the if this political party has within itself the resolve or the intelligence to respond in a different way so i don't know whether it will change tack hopefully it will but i'm not sure but the more paranoic um, its responses the, the greater i think is evidence of the fact that its hold on the popular imagination is slipping we've discussed state repression legislative mechanisms uh, mm-hmm. violent attacks by paramilitaries and so on one thing i've also noticed is in the online environment there's a great deal of well there are all sorts of battles taking place and mm-hmm. by way of example a few weeks ago uh someone announced on my twitter feed that they would be organizing a solidarity demonstration mm-hmm. in melbourne uh, against mm-hmm. the uh, caa and uh, racism and xenophobia and that right. one tweet generated seemingly hundreds if not thousands of messages mm-hmm. denouncing the organizer as a, a traitor and and mm-hmm. and so on and it was quite incredible yeah. to witness the mm-hmm. the size and scale of these mm-hmm. attacks and it seems to be the case that uh the bjp has quite an active presence online can you yeah. speak to the i guess the online environment what that's like for people opposed to the act and the ways in which the bjp sure. and others utilize this online environment to create what yeah. seems to be a, a very hostile atmosphere for critics well the bjp was an early adopter the, the entire rss family was an early adopter of of online technology so they they have what what is called the it cell the information technology cell which is basically a cadre of um, either ideologically committed people or bots or people whose services they've purchased whose job on every day on a daily hourly basis is to basically harass and troll people and they also put out a lot of disinformation and fake news and propaganda uh, it's a constant feature the, the difference that i think we're seeing right now is that this the so called it cell primarily relies on bots and on 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 paid uh, you know on people who work for it for money whereas the citizens resistance online to the right wing agenda is fueled entirely through voluntary effort and while initially it was very difficult to counter this kind of organized synchronous 24/7 fake propaganda and hate speech after a while it's it's becoming increasingly evident to me and many others that you know when you have genuine spontaneous organic citizens articulation that begins to become powerful after a more critical point against sort of paid hate speech servers because they're doing it for as a job whereas citizens are doing it because of a certain passion yes it's true that the uh, there's been a very uh, sort of 
big initiative by the BJP and the RSS to to sort of monopolize the online uh, space, but it's been very seriously challenged. And I'll give you some examples. For instance, the attacks on the JNU campus actually were coordinated on a WhatsApp group. People entered that WhatsApp group and in real time began leaking uh, evidence of the fact that senior ABVP members of the RSS student organization and some members of the JNU faculty were actually listening in or participating in the orchestration of actual physical violence. This is part of the record. So while this was happening, I was present at JNU that night. While these WhatsApp chat rooms were sort of coordinating who was to go to which gate and hit which students in which hostel, screenshots of these chats were being released into the public domain. So there was a very effective fight back to the attempt by the BJP RSS to, to use the online space for its violent purposes. Uh, and that's been the case everywhere. We've, we've noticed the fact that the, the citizens' protests in Shaheen Bagh and the many Shaheen Bagh-like protests that call themselves mini Shaheen Baghs in different parts of the city, I've been traveling to many of them, they all organize themselves through through WhatsApp groups, through online, through Facebook groups, through Twitter feeds, through Instagram. And there's been an ex extraordinary also explosion of humor and creativity where the resistance to the RSS BJP takes it on its own ground and sort of confronts it on its own ground, both on the streets as well as online. So there is a huge effort by them to to, to monopolize public conversation, public discourse, and also they control large amounts of the mainstream media. So if you were to listen in, tune into uh, television stations, news stations, they are a lot like Fox News. There's a channel called Republic TV or ZTV or News Nation, which continuously produce hateful propaganda and lies. And the only way that this has been countered is by constant taking down of of misinformation and of uh, and of hatred. You've published an article for The Caravan about uh, current events, and there are a couple of things in that article I thought um, it'd be worthwhile you elaborating upon. One is the involvement of women in this uh, protest camp and others, the leading role of women, what that means in terms of you know confronting Modi's and uh, the patriarchal nature of uh, Modi's politics, and the second is you drew a, a kind of loose comparison between what's happening in Delhi and similar kinds of protest movements in places like uh, Hong Kong, uh, Baghdad, uh, Beirut, and so on. So, um, what do you think is is this some is this evidence of a a global trend towards what might otherwise be construed as not necessarily leaderless? resistance movements, but movements which don't elevate particular individuals or groups to a leading position and are actually actively and consciously refusing those kinds of representational politics. I think you're, you're very right. I mean, this is a global moment. Uh, it's a global moment when we consider the fact that all over the world, whether it's Bolsonaro in Brazil, whether it's Putin in Russia, Trump in the USA, or Erdogan in Turkey, um, Xi Jinping in China, the Duterte in the Philippines, uh, and Modi is, or uh, Bibi Netanyahu in Israel. Modi is just one of this sort of boys club of, of uh, entitled and 
corrupt men, middle-aged men who are seeking to enforce their very distorted vision uh, onto the world's population. Um, when this trend began to escalate, a lot of people got very worried. But actually, I was quite reassured. I would have been much more worried if we just had Modi in India and didn't have all these idiots in the neighborhood. Uh, it's because it is a global trend that it also means that there will be a global response. And I think that's what we are seeing. We're seeing across the world a new kind of politics emerging, which is writing its rules as it walks. And it is insisting on being leaderless. It is insisting on being largely uh, you know, a result of the, of the activism and the militancy of the young, sometimes the very young, and the incredible amount of power and energy that women bring to these protests. And that's not just true of, of India, it's true of Sudan, it's true of Beirut, where, you know, I mean, my friends in Beirut, when I see the videos they send, you can see the incredible dynamism of young Lebanese women, or in, even in Iran or in Iraq. So um, I think that there is a way in which the legacies of the 20th century and its insistence in a hard, patriarchal, top-down politics, irrespective of whether it was from the right or from the left, is now being challenged on the ground by a generation of young people of whom, in many cases, the large majority are young women. They, they, they do not play by the rules that are set by the boys' club. In India, we've seen that. The Shaheen Bagh protests were, were entirely women-initiated, women-organized, women-led in a leaderless fashion. There's not a single individual who's been, you know, who can we can say is the leader of the protest. They have rotating committees that consist of women who are both grandmothers as well as young college and high school students. And it's this incredible intergenerational solidarity of women that I've seen that has been both very moving and very exemplary. There are faces, but there are no names. So there are the grandmothers, and often the grandmothers are produced as as the the, the sort of the when when the when the assaults of right wing media become become intense, the grandmothers stand up as a, with a kind of moral stature that they have because they're elderly ladies. Sometimes they're eighty or ninety years old, and when the need for energy and enthusiasm comes, then you have the very young women, the seventeen, eighteen year old women who stand up and make themselves counted, and. I think that the state in India and the right-wing political formations have no answer to this. First of all, the reason why the Shaheen Bagh movement is very difficult to attack through police violence is because it's women. I mean, it's very bad optics if you have policemen raining batons and, you know, shooting guns at, a, at an assembly of peaceful women. It doesn't work as a kind of, you know, it doesn't work in, in terms of the optics of the situation. That's one reason why they can't deal with it. The other reason is that there is no panel of leaders whom they can either intimidate or bribe. It's all, all decisions are taken by the general assemblies of women who sit in Shaheen Bagh. So there's not a, you know, there's not a clique that they can that they can manipulate or scare into into submission. So this pattern of leaderless women-led uh, women embodied politics in which men are important allies. I mean, there's this beautiful reversal of roles in Shaheen Bagh, where in a predominantly Muslim majority neighborhood, 
the men and the boys of the families are the ones who are making the tea and, you know, making arrangements for lunch and for children to go to school. And the women are out on the streets protesting. I think this is a very, very remarkable instance of solidarity between genders and also between generations. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, is there somewhere that people can find your writing or art online? I write almost every day on Facebook, so people can find and follow my Facebook page with my name, Shuddha Brata Sengupta. It's relatively easy to find. Um, the Rocks Media Collective's art is shown internationally. Uh, we maintain a sort of separation and a distinction between the kind of art that we produce, which is not necessarily agitprop art, and the political political work that each one of us individually, the three of us, do and the social commitments and engagements that we have. I would be doing the same thing if I were a mathematician. So yes, you can find the Rocks Media Collective's work online on our website and in exhibitions and museums across the world. That was Shudabrata Sengupta there talking to us all about India. Andy, it is subscriber month here at 3CR. It is, Cam. So I would call upon our listeners to go to 3cr.org.au slash subscribe and uh, sign up. In this world of fake news and uh, media that's beholden to corporate interests. Dominated by corporate interests. Stations like 3CR are more important than ever. So please do uh, become a member. 3cr.org.au slash subscribe. We would really, really appreciate it. That's all we've got time for, Andy. But we'll see you next week. Yep. Global Intifada is up next.